Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr. And today we want to talk about, maybe this will be kind of like a holiday field guide to intractable arguments with your relatives. <laughs> I couldn't make an acronym for that. That's the problem. That's, that's okay. There's not, yeah, it's too many consonants. And maybe this is also our contribution to Advent 2, which is peace. Peace. Yeah, it's true. It is. It was peace. Advent 2, peace. So here we go. Uh, Bill, I want to ask you, what is the purpose of morality? The purpose of morality. Uh, we try to be good so that we can grow closer to the good. Evolutionarily, Jonathan Haidt would disagree with you. He's a moral psychologist. He's, he would say its purpose is to blind and bind. That if you look at us evolutionarily, we have this amazing capacity to work together. If you look at the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, we've got, uh, with, you know, with maybe, all of our intelligence. Why we won. Yeah, right, exactly. And, it's, and, and so part of it, he thinks morality is, its purpose is to help us be able to develop groups that go beyond family, immediate kin. And he's, he's, this guy says that he doesn't think the great wonder of the world is the Grand Canyon. That's just water and rocks. Which ama- what's amazing is Mesopotamia. You know, the, yeah. these people can come together and create advanced societies. But so morality, it, it, it serves to create like a connection and also blinds. It, it says, this is what we do and we don't do this. Like right. we celebrate this and we don't do that. And so he would say that if you look in evolutionary kind of terms, that morality has like five foundations. One is conservative. One is, sorry, one is um, compassion. Right, compassion, helping out people in pain. The other, another one is fairness. And by the way, uh, Dawkins thinks that compassion may be an evolutionary accident, a mistake, but it worked and we kept it. Right, it could be. Yeah, it, it, it like all uh, evolutionary stuff, it, it pops up by accident, but it's very functional because it, it, it helps bind groups together. It helps you, you know, helping the weak and certain things. It, it makes us a functional. Well, it may help in selective ways. I mean, that's an interesting thing to think about because you may say compassion is a bit of a late, it shows up late in the civilization, civilization charts, if you would. <laughs> well, and what he would say is this, the compassion thing, it, it varies. It, it's, again, it's mostly for the in-group. It's not, it's not compassion universally. It's compassion for, for the group that you want to cohese. The second one is fairness. And reciprocity, you know, golden rule kind of thing. The third is in-group loyalty, right? That our group is important. I mean, you see it in the animal kingdom, and this tribal psychology kind of develops. And what happens with human beings is the tribe, the capacity to imagine the size of the tribe gets bigger. Right. And here's this great quote. He says uh, that we love... Uh, we love sports because this probably comes from a long history of tribal living, of tribal psychology. This tribal psychology is so deeply pleasurable that even when we don't have tribes, we go ahead and make them because it's fun. Sports is to war as pornography is to sex. We get to exercise some ancient, ancient drives. So this tribal kind of thing, you know, let's go. We got to beat the Steelers because we're the Eagles, even though we're in the same Commonwealth and re- relatively you know, racially right. similar. But we've got to make tribes again. So we have colors. And by the way, my tribe won convincingly last night. Excellent. I like that. <laughs> you can feel good. Hold your chest a little I higher. Do. I do. I feel more evolutionary uh, integrated. 
The fourth foundation for morality is authority slash respect. That there are certain norms, there are certain, um, you know, you see submissive gestures among primates. This is a sort of advanced development of that, that there are certain authority figures and structures that get, that ought to have deference and we ought to revere them. And the fifth is purity and sanctity. Now, a lot of this we think around, of this, you, you read the book of Leviticus and don't touch this thing. And if you touch this thing, you're unclean and these sorts of things. And now we tend to think about it mostly on the right with sexual mores and traditional values. But one of the things hate argues is look at the left with food and how among some liberals, if you say you had to eat a Big Mac, I mean, it's as if you're a disgusting human being that's, that's violated Levitical law or something like that. Right. By the way, I ate at McDonald's and Arby's this weekend. Oh, it was great. <laughs> It doesn't offend me from a purity code, but you take care of yourself in other ways. So yeah, I actually I, lost weight. If that's a guilty pleasure. Then there you go. I, I have felt no guilt. Actually, it was just a pleasure. <laughs> it was just a pleasure. I don't know. There's something about a hamburger that I sat there for five hours. It just doesn't get doesn't work for me, Scott. Mm. But anyway, Teach so what 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 he would say is as we get weird, and by weird in society he means Western. Uh, uh, Industrialized. What's E stand for? Actually, Western. This is where um, digital notes aren't good because you have to scroll. Whereas if I had all this on paper printed, I would just be able to say what it is. Uh, weird is Western. E is something industrialized, rich, and democratic. Uh, so basically, as we get more developed uh, as a liberal society that believes in individual rights and things like that, and we get more economically prosperous. We tend to hold on to compassion and fairness and get rid of the other three. Uh, you know, or the, and this is for all of us. We tend to like feel a push against the latter three. But where the intractable arguments happen in a society like ours are generally because conservatives on the whole are still trying to retain some of the last three. Mm-hmm. And liberals want to jettison them. So everybody, we, we, we don't all agree on compassion and fairness, right? But or we don't always agree with those mean, but we can all say, yeah, those are things we'd like. We to- should be compassionate. We should be fair. fair. Yeah. But for progressives, that's where the morality argument ends. Whereas conservatives still kind of want to talk about respect for authority and purity and in-group loyalty. In fact, for liberals, that stuff sounds I- I- immoral. I mean, in-group loyalty. You know, what about Martin Luther King's, you know, I have a dream and all of it, you know, the one universal hum- humanity. So actually what conservatives tend to prize, liberals even see as pernicious and maybe immoral. So when we're together at our holiday parties and stuff like that, and our irritable in-laws or uncle or cousin or whatever that we cannot stand talking about political and cultural issues with is really getting at us. It may just go back to our evolutionary biology. <laughs> so we, we just have to surrender and, and go back into the cave or find another room. Yeah, or just fight it out like in gorillas in the midst or whatever. <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it is interesting. Uh, I've been uh, reviewing my World War I history, uh, listening to Dan Carlin. And, uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me, <clears throat> there was a speech at one point during a kind of a lull in the fighting where a German stood up and started giving a socialist speech and the French and English cheered him. (laughs) I mean, you know, you stop and think, I mean, what did tribal loyalty 
and uh, unconditional belief in authority get us? Well, it got us the 20th century and 100 million people dead. Well, yeah, it also got us out of, like, you know, the fertile... I mean, yeah, yes, you know, these are the things where... You know, this is what one of the things Haight argues in several of his... And we'll, in the show notes, I'll put some links to some of his work. He argues that, you know, what conservatives think is that order is really tough to create and diff- even more difficult to maintain and very easy to lose. You know, for things can fall apart quickly. So there's this fear... Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, obviously, it, unconditional loyalty to authority has caused awful things. But also, real respect for authority has made lots of things possible. Right. Well, I think this idea of authorities acting justly and this idea of the common good, uh, which brings us back to Brother Aristotle and, and Thomas, you know, who I got my initial definition of morality from. Uh, you know, there's a sense there has to be some criteria. In other words, I, I think the problem um, is, you know, absolute anything. In other words, what are the criteria by which we uh, we follow authority? What does it mean to be part of a group? And are there larger groups that are more important than the immediate tribal group that we are part of? Yeah, and I think that when we engage in these discussions, what we got to realize is that, like, we like things for reasons that are are less than rational. So they've done studies, Hate and his graduate students have, have done studies, conservatives, they do these studies with dots moving around a screen. Liberals like when the dots move, people that self-identify like when they move in random and chaotic patterns. Conservatives like when they move in more lockstep patterns. <laughs> like, you know, that liberals tend to like personality be more open to new experiences and diverse experiences. Conservatives tend to like uh, routine and ritualized experience. This is why some people eat at Applebee's. And if you don't like Applebee's, probably most of your friends won't. (laughs) You're different because you like people that will do different things with you, that sort of thing. So I think when we talk about, uh, even when we start to use words like absolutes, and probably some, not that we're bound by personality, people change and evolve, but when we're most drawn to commitments, whether it's on gun control uh, ISIS, refugees, but pick any of the hot-button issues we've seen over the past few weeks in social media. When we're the most incensed, we're probably the least reflective and rational. Oh, that, that would make sense. That, that would, you know, there's something, I mean, when we tap into anger, I mean, there's something survival at, at stake. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in terms of anxiety and anger are all pretty primal feelings that helped us survive. Um you know, help, what, but what helps us run away from a saber-toothed tiger doesn't necessarily help us live well in a pluralistic society. Unless it's helping you catch a train. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. You know, there's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, I, I was listening to NPR and his whole new college industry um, of rather than, than deal with uh, the gun problem, we are now training people how to survive a mass shooting. Oh, yeah. One of the things I saw was tie your belt to the do- the doors with the kind of arm at the top, like right. in hotel stairways. They, I saw a video how you could take your belt and tie it to the mechanism at the top corner of the door jam so it won't open. Okay. Now, here I'm going to give you these three words that are part of the training. Okay. Flee, hide, fight. Oh, I, I read that. Yeah. <laughs> I read this. I heard this report. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, what I mean that image of is cave woman mom. 
saying, okay, okay, here's, you know, it's a dangerous world out there. So learn how to run really fast or how to hide or how to fight. <clears throat> I, it, it seems to me that, again, being realistic, again, I, you know, it's good to know what to do in a, in a, in a disaster. Um, it, it, it's a bit troubling that we're not willing to use our brain power to actually maybe try to solve the problems. Yeah, I, well, I think that that's because we don't want to use, like, I, I think, so I, I've read tons of stuff of late on gun control. Uh, tons of studies, and I realize that I don't know anything about it. The more I read, the less I know. Uh, the art, the stuff that, and it's it's indisputable, right? Indisputable that the states in the United States that have fewer guns have fewer gun violence, and and the, and the places with fewer guns have have more restrictive laws. And so we could extrapolate all kinds of things from that, right? But what hate has shown is actually it's probably more like the people that don't like guns. Uh, and like diverse experiences, move to places like Portland and stuff, and they don't mind gun laws. The people that kind of want to be left alone, like bucolic things, like you know, they. T- so there's, I just think so much of this stuff is so complicated, right? That at the point where it actually involve using brain power, we get worn out. But because no, no I, I understand that too. And of course, again, um, our brain, best brain power does show us how complex the situation is. But there, there's a sense to me where it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, in other words, uh, we promote this kind of culture of fear. Okay, and not that there's, you know, this, there's some real bad things can happen, but, you know, you need a gun to protect your household. Okay, and you get more guns. And, and, and there's a sense where uh, I think some people would actually be relieved if we got the zombie apocalypse because they would say see i told you so <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and they'd be equipped i mean you know it's a it, yeah yeah i think that so what is it about you know the other interesting thing and this is the thing in his work i find fascinating so let's say you were talking about gun control or mm-hmm. one of the many other hot issues at your holiday party or something like that or your christmas dinner that for some reason they give these moral inventory tests right and most people can figure out where they would test for but what's interesting is when they give the conservative people the test and say, try to take it like a liberal, they can pass. The liberals, by and large, can't do it the other way. They, they, they give the liberal test, the, the, the test that they were, and all right, now try to come out as a conservative. They just can't do it. So, so there's something, it's interesting that I think some of, the, some of the things that people who are social conservatives in our culture are trying to preserve Liberals just don't see as having anything to do with morality. Or even if they do, they're immoral. But the funny thing is, most of the conservatives who, who are, tend to be more religious, right, uh, are actually, they care less about suffering people in other countries, but do more to allevi- alleviate suffering in their own neighborhood uh, and are actually nicer to other people than their secular liberal counterparts. On the whole, I mean, that's not to say there aren't very, you know, awful religious people and very saintly secular people. But on the whole, the research shows that what liberals like to do is get incensed about injustice all over the world and tend to do less about it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, when we talk about the social gospel, for instance, which was a 19th century into the early 20th century, we tend to talk about the leading liberal lights of the social gospel. Yeah. But... 
while they were, you know, doing their critical stuff in, you know, the urban uh, northeast Chicago, Detroit, <clears throat> right beside them on the other side of town or right beside them were these hyper-fundamentalist groups mm-hmm. doing the exact same thing. And a lot of those gospel rescue missions, Salvation Army, that are much more traditional and conservative are still doing the same things that um, the social gospel folks were doing. So uh, that that kind of, I mean, experientially uh, or evidentially, I, I, I get that. So I guess we try to find some some solutions here. Not maybe solutions. That's that's overstating what we try to do. But we try to say, okay, so what? What can we do to maybe, um, now that we know a little bit about this, create better ways? Well, you could drink more cocktails at the family meals. Okay, so might, say, that might make it worse, though. Yeah, it depends. For edgy people, it might make it worse. There are there are some people who get more mellow when they get True. drunk, and there are people who get more obnoxious. Okay, so, so that's not a solution. Yeah, I thought maybe... That, no. Well... No. I, well, I think that one of the things that... Uh, it's interesting because he said that sometimes people ask him, he's had some people in the global warming crowd uh, ask, like, well, how do we convince... Conservatives, you know, the people who are climate change activists, how do we convince the conservatives, you know, to take climate change seriously? So, well, I mean, one thing is, you know, find a validator symbol. What do you mean? We'll get like a five star army general to say this is really threatening American defense or something that, you know, that, that because that, okay, the in tribe protection thing, uh, sort of morality channel lights up. But then he said also, the other thing that's important is just get to know people that, uh, let them get to know people that they really like that are imaginative and attractive and fun and warm and that hold different convictions than themselves. Because then it's hard once that person's humanized, once they become part of that person's in tribe. Right. And I think this, this kind of cuts across spectrums, like, like being able to humanize people so that they don't just become parts of a demographic or right. a tribe, but they actually become full-orbed human beings. I think it's probably somewhat of a start. Yeah, you know, I, I, this is <laughs> this is just a, an intuition, but my guess is that there are more liberal ghettos. Now, I won't say there's more, but but let's say you're a conservative person. You, know, you come from a conservative background, and you get a higher education. Whether or not you accept the liberal views that you are taught, nonetheless, you're, you're exposed to liberal ideology. Most of them, yeah. 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 Jonathan Haidt says that, and he's at the top of his field. Right. He says he knows one conservative in the whole, in his whole field, more in the field of moral psychology and development. One. Well, I, I, th- <laughs> I think we know that liberal educational institutions, um, including theological ones, have a horrific bias against conservative people. And hate is a guy who identifies as an atheist. Still, he said, you know, when I went to graduate school, I started as a Reagan hated, hating, religion hating atheist. He's like, I'm still a liberal, but I don't, and I'm, I'm an atheist. And he's not religiously observant, but he's grown to really learn some things from conservatives and from religions. Right. Uh, but he does, but he validates this. He said, you know, diversity is valued in the university. And this guy's a pretty liberal guy. He says, diversity is, ma- is, is valued in everything except thought. Right. I mean, I think some of the some of the most some of the least diverse places I've ever been have been liberal, diverse, you know, religious institutions. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but, and again, I think the other thing too is that um, I think we have to take. I think it, it takes some risk. I mean, rather than create safe zones, okay, um, I think we have to create uh, zones where. Well, no, let me let me rephrase that. I think we have to create, you know, a safe risk. I mean, we used to talk about this in in youth ministry. Okay, we need we want to create a safe risk. Okay, in other words, we want to stretch people, but not to the point where we break them or they're harmed. Okay, now again, there's no uh, you know you know you can sit you can stay at home in front of your uh, screen. That might be the most absolute physically safe thing. So nothing is safe when it comes to other human beings. Um, I like that. Like <laughs> in some levels, C.S. Lewis's idea that every human is a uh, a potential immortal. Which makes them both very special and very dangerous. Yeah. yeah. But I do think there's a sense where um, creating some, some opportunities for some truly open dialogue. I don't know if I've shared this incident or not, but um, over the last couple of years, I've been part of helping form this urban suburban uh, interfaith group that's dealing with critical issues. So you literally have folks from the suburbs alongside folks from an urban community and Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And you have both liberal Christians and some more conservative Christians. And it was this fascinating uh, encounter. It was a, there was a smaller group of us there, and there was an evangelical woman talking about her brothers and sisters in Christ and how she never doesn't see any colors and everybody's, you know, as a Christian, I see everybody, you know, uh, you know, she was talking about that. And the, a Jewish rabbi, female sitting across from her, do you see me as a sister as well? Mm. And this lovely uh, Nation of Islam woman who really does a lot of good in her community, very gentle spirit, she goes, and what about me? Mm. And I was just sitting there watching. Uh, There's only one other person in the room beside me. And it was really pretty powerful because... The evangelical woman, who I would not say is not someone who's particularly theologically driven. She's an educated person, a professional person. But I saw her think. And I also had seen the kind of sisterhood that had developed between these three women. And she said, absolutely. Hmm. Now, you know, (laughs) her pastor was sitting across the room. I don't know if he... He agreed with that, hmm. but but she she it was with integrity. Hmm. Now hmm. and and no one, none of the three were asked to compromise their their theological beliefs. Now you may say, well, the evangelical woman just did by calling a reconstructionist rabbi in a nation of Islam sister, you know, sisters. But I think it came out of her genuine. Um, walk that was was faith inspired and trying to make a change in the world and my guess is those three people don't vote the same way i know they don't worship the same way during the week but there was something there in that moment that felt felt more real to me than the differences that they may have on paper it's interesting uh Hate in the beginning of his book called it's so funny this is such a compassionate person and his name is Hate, but it's H I H A I D T. So 
But in the beginning of his book, The Righteous Mind, he tells, he quotes E.O.C. Uh, Klein Halevi, who I think is a, a Jewish historian or something. He's a, he's a uh, uh, journalist. Right, okay. Yeah, journalist. He says, uh, he quotes some of the differences between Passover Jews and, Pur- and Purim Jews. So he says that um, there's these two threads, these two strands uh, among in, Jew- in the Jewish tradition. And he said, the first voice, the Passover Jew, the, the first voice commands us, he says, to remember that we were strangers in the land of Egypt. And the message of that command is don't be brutal. The second voice, the Purim voice, commands us to remember how the tribe of Amalek attacked us without provocation while we were wandering in the desert, and that the message of that command is don't be naive. Passover Jews are motivated by empathy for the, for the oppressed. Purim Jews are motivated by alertness to threat. And he goes on to say that, uh, that uh, these group-binding virtues, both of, both of them, um, you need both of them. And that both sides are right. And figuring out how, you know, how to convey that both of these are part of what made the Jewish people the Jewish people. Right. And, so we're, and I think that, that that instinct to see both of these moments in the Jewish religious imagination and, and spirituality as essential. And the thing is, it's being able to see this is where the morality kind of blinds and, and it right. binds, but it blinds. So being able to, to see the other person is actually having something about something to contribute to human flourishing that you need, that you can't see because you've got some things that you have that you think are important. So yeah. I think that sort of Passover Purim kind of tench, creative tension. Like if we could, that's, I think, part of the big key. Like how can you look over at the Purim person at your, at your Christmas, mixing metaphors at your Christmas dinner. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, and say, Hey, like what is it in them? What do they see that I'm blinded to? Yeah. And vice versa. I think the other thing too, is not to trust our own prophetic indignation. Yeah. You know, um, I'm going to give you a summary of the book of Malachi, which was the electionary reading um, this past week for Advent 2. Um, here's the whole book. Uh, Malachi, which not, may even be an anonymous guy. Malachi is taken from the Hebrew word for messenger. I, my, my theory is he didn't put his name on it because he starts out, he's angry at the people who are half-heartedly following their faith. So he's frustrated in the voice of God. He's frustrated with the people. He's frustrated with the priest. He comes back and he's frustrated again with the people, okay? And he puts his frustration in the mouth of God. And then he says, and the day of the Lord's coming, and God's going to come, he's going to straighten it out. In other words, you know, he's going to bring fire and, you know, the refiner's soap. So basically you're going to get a whipping and your mouth's going to be cleaned out with soap. I like it. Yeah, but it's interesting. <clears throat> we believe that that's fulfilled. And, you know, as a matter of fact, the, the other readings from Luke um, Luke 1, where Zechariah, the, the father of the messenger that, you know, we celebrate was fulfilling John the Baptist, said that you, my son, have come to reveal the tender mercies of God. And so I, I don't think that our commitment to truth, our commitment to what's right, ever trumps tender mercy. Amen.
you're wrong But I ain't gonna argue with you no more I've done it far too long It was getting so good Why then? Where did it go? I can't think about it no more Tell me if you know You were loving me I was loving you But now there ain't nothing but regret Nothing, nothing but regret Everything we do I put up with your life Like you put up with mine But God knows we should have stopped somewhere We could have taken the time The time has turned, yes Some call it the end So tell me, tell me, did you really love me? Like a friend You know you don't have to pretend It's all over now Nothing but regret. Nothing, nothing but regret. 